G'day, I'm Dan Fox. This is Farmers Helping Farmers, the podcast. Proudly brought to you by Vic No-Till. It is with great pleasure to sit down with Vic No-Till Vice President Tom Briggs for this episode of the Farmers Helping Farmers podcast. Tom grew up on his family farm near Rutherglen in Victoria and his passion for agriculture was ignited at a young age. Tom moved away after finishing school to work on a farm in Queensland. When he returned to the home block, he was eager to help change the family farm to a more regenerative, resilient operation. This change hasn't come without many challenges, learning experiences and soul searching for Tom and his family. Tom is passionate about sharing what he's discovered during the transition of his operation, allowing others to make the change much easier than he has. A true testament for the Farmers Helping Farmers motto. Thanks, Tom, for joining me today. Been a good shower rain the last couple of days, so it's been a really good opportunity to catch up. Another home game for me, which is really good. So you're the first board member we've had on the podcast. So many of our listeners would be familiar with what you've been up to, um, following you along in the magazine and that sort of thing. But like everyone I interview, you've got a really interesting backstory that probably not many people know about. Do you want to uh, share what your experiences have been with agriculture up to this point in time? Yeah, morning, Foxy, thank you. Um... Grew up on a family farm, third generation by blood, fourth by name. Was always thought that I was going to be able to go straight back onto the farm, which is a mixed farm down the northeast of Victoria. But mum and dad stipulated pretty early on that it was either I had to get an education or go away and work somewhere else before I came home. And I always thought that I was going to find a way to jump through that loophole, but it turned out when it got pretty close, they were holding pretty firm. <laughs> on that position. So I did work for dad for a year straight after school, but did did apply and went down to Melbourne uh, to university to study industrial design and thought it might have been a bit of fun to draw, draw and design machinery. And when I was down there, I thought, bugger this, I'd rather be out <laughs> mucking around and getting my hands dirty. So after three months in Melbourne, went up to central Queensland to the Browns up at Capella. It was about 30,000 acres, roughly split half between grazing and cropping, and then half between winter crop and summer crop. Controlled traffic with a tine, but retaining stubbles and saw the benefits when I was up there in dry years of what having a bit of ground cover meant between planning on a full profile and harvesting something and a couple of times maybe a bit of cultivation where it didn't. The opportunity um, arose to come home and after being up there for a few years, came home with a few ideas and implemented sort of where we're at today or started the ball rolling when I came home. Yeah. So that experience that you had up in Queensland, it's obviously a lot different environment to where you're farming at the moment with your father. For a lot of our southern listeners, we don't sort of understand that or that planning on moisture and planning on a full profile and that sort of thing. What did you find, you know, was it a big shock going up north to um, see what that was all about? The, um, probably some of the biggest differences and what's motivated a lot of change at home was on their black self-mulching soils was how water would just disappear. That it was never about a waterlogging issue, it was about how do you retain and utilise that moisture which was a completely different kettle of fish to what I was used to as a kid, which was swimming in mud and them up there then saying, give us more, like the equation was just add, add water in a warm, conducive environment. So that was probably the biggest, biggest difference. And obviously coming from a, originally a tine, tine and burn system down home, going to a stubber retention, seeing how that was working, seeing some of the complications with it and 
thinking about whilst I was up there, how would you bring sort of this system home or implement it and what would you have to adjust, compromise to get it to work, work at home? But the biggest one was purely around water management really on landscape. I think that that's probably an important thing to remember that, yeah, a lot of locations around Australia are all pretty different. And, yep. you know, as you said, you know, while you're up there, you're thinking about how, how can I bring it home? And that probably leads us into a bit of a discussion about, about context and, yep. and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm pretty strong in advising people that they've got to understand their own context first. And obviously growing up on your family farm and then moving away, you sort of understood both of them. It's obviously a very big change from Queensland to Victoria, different climate and, yep. and different soil type. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think a lot of it was once we actually got into our current system was where the, the headaches really came. Like, obviously, it's completely different worlds apart. It wasn't that the stubble retention system or anything like that didn't work. It was just that implementing it was what we'll talk about in a bit was where we went a bit haywire and it didn't quite go, go to plan early on. Well, I suppose we can probably touch on that subject now. As you've probably alluded to, that transition for you, taking what you learnt from a Queensland context, trying to apply it in the in the Victorian context, you know, heavy clays, cold soils, winter planting certainly was challenging. Um, like we've had a lot of discussions along along the time where, you know, I'm guilty of it too. We've done things that without understanding our own context. Do you want to elaborate how or, you know, what you thought was right and, and sort of didn't work in that context and, and what you've done to that line of thinking. Like, you're still along the regenerative lines, obviously, but had to tweak it to suit your context. Yeah, and I suppose early on when I thought about when I came, was going to, at a minimum, was coming home hell-bent that we're going to start retaining stubbles and I knew to do it in our environment with a certain weed pressures, mainly ryegrass, it'd have to be disc, it'd have to be narrow row, couldn't be a tine, couldn't be wide row. So there was some, um, but then I knew that it was more than just that system. Like that wasn't just like the only thing we could implement. It's like what else came along? Was it spot spraying? Was a variable rate fertiliser? And it sort of just didn't quite answer the questions for me. Plus, I was walking around all over the farm, sticking the shovel in everywhere, just thinking, you know, why is this paddock doing this? Why is this paddock doing that? Even, and I know it's never had any um, farming pressures on it, but even mum's lawn, just mm. stuck the shovel in there. It's obviously got access to water all year round and growing a plant, but it almost replicated the black self-mulching soils of Queensland once you stuck and turned the lawn up. But 30 metres to the north of the house and 30 metres to the south, wet years, just waterlogged, grey grey clays. So I was like, well, smack bang in the middle of it, here's a black, rich, crumbly, friable soil. What's going on? Then to a couple of paddocks where we had loosened that in when I came home in 2016 was obviously a wet year. So coming out of Queensland drought into 2016 at home and never saw tractors so muddy for such a long time. And then that loosened paddock with the back, or ex-loosened paddock with the background nitrogen, Obviously, the deeper taproot handled the water nearly all year, yielded. We put bugger all nitrogen on it and just started, you know, it started snowballing from there. And so then from there, started, you know, asking Dad about could we plant crops into loose and being on the farm, but not really, you know, being at home with Dad for years and like chipping through the system. And he's saying, oh, 
you know, might rob too much moisture going straight into a loosened crop and then it came across some of the stuff out of the states around cover cropping, carbon, sort of seeing um, some solutions for us around growing something over summer to dry the profile out, build carbon, porosity. We're going more dominant sheep than cropping now, um, an ability to fill the feed gap. So then that really got the ball rolling when I thought, okay, I think this has got some merit to address our issues and take us forward rather than sort of treating symptoms. But then there was a pretty steep learning curve once we actually got into into that system. Yeah, and I, I think we we all have that steep learning curve. I certainly did. Yeah, you know, and it's funny how you talk about you know your discussions with your father. Oh, I've had discussions with dad as well, and give him a lot of credit. He was and still is a very very good farmer. Yeah, and we've had we've had a lot of conversations about it. That chemical method of farming, you know, very simple, but he was very, very good at it. And, yep. you know, that treating symptoms rather than addressing problems and that sort of thing. And I sort of saw pretty much what you saw as well. And getting influenced from outside influences to say there is a better way uh, is very inspiring, but we've got to understand our own context too. And, yep. and that's one thing that Dad did know is, is our own context in our, our own farm, as your father would. Yeah. He always said, you know, just got to be careful. Where's all the nutrition coming from? Yeah. And that's one thing that we didn't understand. Like our cold climate, you know, we do need some some upfront fertility to get things going, particularly for us anyway, in a winter crop or winter dominant cropping system. Yeah. And, and uh, I suppose we'll, we can dive into it now. And that's where, not that dad wasn't saying being cautious, we're having a lot of discussions we came out of 2016 and then we went into 2017. We're still sort of transitioning off the broadcast fertiliser, sort of thinking, oh, we'll take a slow step. For us, where we are nearly laser level flat, 2017, while well, most of up here was in going well into drought, that was a prime year for us coming out of 2016. Had the moisture, a bit drier, a bit warmer as well, so everything just roared along. And then the drought hit for us in 18 and 19 and we're coming across all the foliar nutrition, seeing some benefits, getting summer cover crops to grow, thinking, okay, I think we're on the right track here. So we went into a drought, into a warm period where foliar stimulating amounts of fertiliser were getting us through and that wasn't a typical scenario for us that it was add moisture for us. So we sort of got lulled into it Mm. a little bit that was like, okay, this foliar stuff's keeping up a bit, but Dad and I, by the end of 19, were having conversations, what happens if it's wet about even just getting the sprayer across the paddocks for us mm. in the middle of winter, how's it going to go? And I said, well, more rain equals more growth, so we're just going to have to ramp it, ramp up the foliage like crazy when the wet comes. And we got into 2020 and said, right, oh, so nearly every second week we're loading up with mainly di um, diluted urea and going dropped and also through the dry years we basically dropped the fert starter fertilizer MAP right out and getting enough vigor early on because it was you know there was a bit of moisture there it was still warm and then we hit 2020 and we just the crops were looking good we we're going every second week and then it got to the end of harvest and we just got the almost almighty kick in the guts and really had to hit reset mm. set from there like crops were looking pretty handy all year and got halfway through one paddock and called up dad and he said oh do you need the truck yet and I said no I'm halfway across the paddock and I still don't need it and had a moment where I was expecting dad to 
blow my ear off saying how to harvest a crop like this and just said, look, we all, we all got this wrong. I thought we were on the right, right track as well. Went home feeling pretty dejected. My now wife Marion said, it's, well, what do you do? It's, you know, you're not a crap farmer. We, you're working on a system and then you hit the period where context and environment was actually critical and we just didn't quite have that system right. Mm. We didn't have, you know, sort of pay homage to, I guess, to some early pioneers about the time they take to build their system, build their house to allow what they, they are doing. Mm. Um, and we just weren't there yet, jumped a bit early. And so, yeah, that 2020 took a sort of pretty big reset on how do we look at it? Were we going too fast, too early? What was the right system? Yeah, how do we get that balance, balance right? Because there's evidence out there the system works. Mm. We just didn't quite have it right. Got lulled a little bit by dry, dry years and really hit the wet that we weren't ready. Yeah, so pretty painful, but learn a fair bit in one year. They're learning experiences yeah. and, and they're, like, they're not mistakes. So I always say, yeah. you know, they're not mistakes unless you, you don't learn something from them. Yeah. Um, look, I, I've got a very, very similar story, 2021 for us. And, you know, we had some areas go well and some terrible. And that's where we learned that context is a really important thing. And, you know, it's that, especially in annual crops, where we're sowing them later into, you know, later in the sowing period or in the autumn sowing period, still need to look after them. It's the first eight weeks. Yeah. And that, that physically hasn't changed for the seedling that we're putting or the seed that we're putting in the ground. And we were the same. We got lulled in, you know, the less you spent, the better you went in the, you know, 17, 18, 19 yep. when it was dry. And 2020 come along and we were reasonably lucky. We had some weed on pulse double and that done pretty good. And, you know, 2020 was pretty good year, but... 2021, when the nutrition from the droughts ran out, that was the one that went crunch. Yeah, and and you, you guys will probably correct me if I'm not getting it right here. Like you know, you were you were still a few, you were a couple of years ahead of us going from you know tine retaining some stubbles of where you can manage yep. with your tine. So you, like you had that extra year sort of in the bank where 2016 I came home was still burning. 2017 we had a disc and stubble like we mm. kicked the system in. It hadn't had the chance to build. We didn't have the rotation in place for yep. it. And that first wet year it was like I'm not ready. <laughs> the system's like yeah. not ready for what you've just thrown at me. Yep. And it's like oh righto. So yeah. so it is about for us now managing managing for the wet years because we can we, we know we know what we can implement straight away when it's moisture limited. It's yep. about for us wet and cold yep. and keeping the crops crops going is where where the biggest change needed to be. Mm, and setting that yield potential early is, is really important. Yep. And I think probably both of our stories serves as a bit of a warning for people that are trying to go down this path. That yep. Like a lot of croppers ask me, well, where do you start? And, you know, a bit the same as where you were. Well, you know, try and keep as much stubble as you can, reduce your, your disturbance as much as you can, whether that be through, you know, a or a disc or yep. whatever. But... Just change things slowly. Don't change your fertility program. Don't don't do the whole hog in one go because a bit like a heroin addict. So. Yeah, I, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here in questions, but I think if the biggest thing that taking fungicides off seed, putting biological nutrient nutrition on seed, that's a simple one. Managing thresholds with pests is a simple one. Being smart about you know, are you inducing disease in your crop but all that sort of like that those three are easy that nutrition component is the big one to be really really wary of yeah um all the other ones are just sort of bit of 
system cultural stuff to manage, but the yep. nutrition one I think is the big the big warning call about if you, if you even if you're just going straight disc stubble, hold it there. Even if you're asked been you know ten years, fifteen years stubble. Mm discs whatever you still be wary once you flip that nutrition switch you gotta yeah you gotta be wise about it mm. and i think the nutrition you know we can still be as you say wise about it but we can be wise in terms of what what we put in our rotation too yeah um, absolutely like when you when you go back one generation to you know your father's and my father's generation for us anyway it was three years of pasture take it out canola wheat Undersown barley, and then it's out again. And isn't it crazy how quickly we've got from that system that we're still talking to a generation above us about what that was and how quickly we've got to, oof, these yeah. chemical ones produce a lot of yield and a lot of income, but it's also on an increasing scale of use. It's amazing that, it's, it, that, that, that knowledge is only a generation above yep. us and how quickly we've said we need to sort of replicate what was. What was, yeah. And now. it's, you know, in terms of that scale, the, the scale of use is increasing, but the scale of efficiency yeah. is definitely yeah. de decreasing. And, and so for us, that now is centred around going further to, for us on the flat, people are getting away with some favour beans a little bit, but really pulses aren't suited to to our soil types, if it doesn't, doesn't come to grain for the subsequent crop, but for us, the system has been, we go back to a pasture phase. Mm. I'm enjoying working with the sheep, but breeding all the stuff that makes sheep a nightmare out of them. <laughs> but that's that's where our nutrition bank's coming from, where for you guys up here, it's sheep's not part of your system. So it's like, how do you build it? Well, pulses have to be an mm. integral part of it and don't get too far away from it. Yep. Yeah, and I think, you know, learning how we can probably incorporate cover crops in different yep. parts of the rotation and just trying to bend the rules a little bit in terms of sowing times and certainly mixed species, we're trying that a lot too. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. Yeah. But, you know, getting back to the, the point of the nitrogen's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. And in our cold environment when we're setting yield potential, it's, it's a lot different to that North American context which was introduced a few years ago. Yeah. It's very, very critical for us to set yield potential yeah. because that's, you know, everything that the crop, you know, its potential yield at the other end of the year is all set, you know, within the first eight, ten weeks. Yeah. And I think we probably, I don't know whether we lost sight of it or not, but we lost sight of how to do it in terms of a regenerative system. And, yeah, I, I think we just, we all had to take sort of half a step back and say, well, right, well, this is the most important thing. How do we do it without or well, with causing the least amount of harm? Yeah. So and and I think you know if I look back on the time we heard the message and like make no mistake when we pulled everything out we made the gains that all the experts that we were hearing said was going to happen. Our soil structure opened up, mm. our carbon started increasing, infiltration rate like everything started happening. And then at the same time they're saying you know excess amounts of fertilizer, chemical like it's doing and. The evidence is there, like you can go jump a fence or something and you can see where that compaction is and what's causing it. But I think the interesting thing is now being conscious, like if I go and load up the spreader, it's like I need to do it to give the crop the shot in the arm, but I'm conscious that, you know, we've got to keep working around, like how, how do we get further away from this in time? Yep. But you've got that conscious mindset, it's not just being blase about loading up with granular urea and going flicking out, it's an easy thing, it's just, you know, 
I don't think it's a bad thing to be conscious about. Are we doing harm to generate that bit of bit of growth? We have to do it. Mm. How do we get away from it in time and yeah. just keep aiming aiming towards it? And yeah. being at peace at, at the moment, we still we still need that little bit of a punch. Well, nitrogen is still a macronutrient, yeah. isn't it? And if you haven't got it, you've got to apply it. Yeah. And you know, we, when we're talking nutrition, we want balanced nutrition, don't we? Why is nitrogen not part of that balance? Yeah. It's always got to be in a balance with carbon, but it's always got to be in a balance with magnesium and, and all our other elements. Yeah. And I, I think that's where we got wrong is, you know, we're told that phosphorus is poison and nitrogen's poison and all this, you know, when it's not, it's, it's an essential nutrient for life. Um, yeah. Without it, we can't make chlorophyll. We can't. You know, harness the energy from the sun, we can't feed the biology, all that sort of thing. So under-application of nitrogen is probably just as damaging to the system as what over-application yeah. of nitrogen is. And, and that's the message I think you know, is really important, that it's, it's the, the smart use of nitrogen and not the overuse of nitrogen, Putting, you know, understanding carbon-nitrogen ratios yeah. and all that sort of stuff to, to get the biggest bang out of your nitrogen yeah. buck. So. And my bread and butter in time has become, I love I love all the cropping, I love the farming, but I hear you and Pato go and talk about ratios and how much you're putting in your brews and that just goes straight over my head. I've got a bit more of a simplistic approach and basically what we've gone back to is we are doing sap tests and then balancing in the spring, but we know typically we're untrafficable in winter mm. and if we miss that window, the crops still grow like crazy once the warmth shows up in spring, but we've left it too late for them. So we've got a really simple approach now that it's we're not set up for liquids yet on the planter. So it's just we're going back. We've gone back to 50 kilos of MAP with humates, which is if the 30% increase in efficiency is right, it's about 80 kilos of MAP um, with the seed to give it the bit of shot out of the ground. Three to five leaf um, going out with 50 kilos of urea, and, and it's not about and budgets or anything about that. We just know that if we give it that hit, it gets the energy, it keeps hitting some reproductive stages. It's not, we're not trying to grow biomass or anything like that. It's just keeping it, ticking its phases off and then come in the spring, that's when we go in and it's like, okay, let's balance it out. And so, yeah, we're working on 250s through the winter periods. Of just, urea. Of urea with humates, just to keep that energy in the crop. It's not, a, it's not really an, an equation, so to speak, about, you know, deep soil, deep end tests or anything like that. It's just we just know that that gives it a bit of energy without being excessive yep. with it. And then in the spring, then we go and look at the foliars and level it level it all out. And that's where our system's at at the moment. And really, that's where we were, well, where Dad was before, except minus the humates. And you'd usually just go chuck 100 kilos out in June or July, just one pass down the paddock, bang, that was... And at the yep. time, we were milling grain for the pigs, so it was just a matter of fill up the silos to mill the grain for the pigs. Yep. So basically that's where we come back to just with some new new touches on it and shortening up the crop rotation to go back into a pasture yep. um, a bit quicker to capitalise on the end bank out of a clover-based pasture system. Mm, yeah. It's funny when you're listening to a few podcasts, particularly John Kemp's podcast, and you know, talk, you, know, you listen to a lot of blokes over there and they tend to say the same sort of a thing. They just, they go, well, you, you say, tell a farmer something and they go, oh, my grandfather did that. Or, yeah. oh, my father did that. Yeah. And it's really funny that we're sitting here <laughs> saying, well, it's not much different to what we... Yeah. And I think that's the message that we aren't far off. Modern farming isn't very far off. You know, to improve, you don't have to change a lot. Yeah. It's, 
and and it's not drop one thing off and not replace it with yeah, another. It's, yeah. You know, it's being smart about your nitrogen, and not being too far away, growing your fertility, you know, trying to, I think probably the fungicides are probably the biggest and insecticides probably the two biggest things that we, we had to yeah, change. And, um, and, and we thought that we could get, and again, the dry year lowered us in because we were getting sustained response like out of a month or so out of a folio it was low rates mm. like we tried to replace it but we went low but it was a water so it was yeah we we got lulled into it and then we went back into the wet and cold yep so one of the other things that happened with the system was at that point we were just the same paddocks being cropped for as long as i could ever remember yep and so then we pulled the when it came back wet we didn't have the urea in the system only two years into cycling organic matter through stubble retention. And then, yeah, we we're using small amounts of, of foliar. And so then we just, yeah, came back to some basics when it's wet and cold. And context for us is we know that that 50 kilos and, and just we're still banking, like still using the 100 kilos combined, but it's like, okay, let's split it up so it's not one big hit. Yep. And just use those two stimulant, stimulating amounts to keep the energy in the crop. Because yep. if, what, and I think you and I have discussed this as well, once you lose that energy in the crop, you're really pushing the barrow up the hill. And so it was about that 50 kilos was just keeping it happy, keeping it yep. stimulated to really get into it in the spring mm. when it wants to grow. Yeah, it's a bit like sick lamb. Like yeah. when, when lamb stops growing because you run out of feed, it takes four weeks of feed to get him going the yep. right way. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 easy to, it's easy to maintain it, but once you lose it... It you, takes a long it. time to turn around. Crops are exactly the same. Yep. Once you lose that energy, and this is what we've been told for a while now, got to keep the energy into them early, get that rhizosphere established in the first eight to 12 weeks. Once the spring warms up, then it looks after itself. Yep. But and, and some of the other stuff that's learning as well is, you know, you know bringing the planting windows forward, finding longer mm. season stuff to capture that early conducive growing environment to get yep. that vigour into the crop. So then it's only about, but if you're trying to plant May to June yeah. <laughs> and it's trying to come out of the ground, well, you're going to have to really hit it then. But if it's got itself established got the rises er, early established. May, late yep. April, even into March with some of these winter weeds, if, they got, if they've got everything happening there, then it's only that, you know, you've got the body energy in the, ramp, uh, in the lamb. Yep. It's just about, you know, keep, keep ticking it along. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's where, learning curve. that's where a lot of those sort of, you know, you probably back your phosphorus rates off a bit because yeah. it's warm. Yeah, know, yeah, you, yeah. You can back your nitrogen yeah. or, you know, only do 150 kilos instead of two yeah. because you've got that rhizosphere established. Yeah. You've got the, the biology around the roots to, you know, doing yeah. their job when it is warm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and that's, you know, in hindsight, a wonderful <laughs> thing. And, yeah. and we're still changing our system as you are, yeah. as, as many people are. and. You know, they're sort of things that we... But you had have to get the basics right yep. to, to be able to take that next yep. step. So. Yeah. And some, I think there are some really simple things to do, such as yeah, just yeah, buffer it, maybe reduce it a little bit, just see what, you know, a 20 or 30% reduction with some carbon, so like just, you know, split yep. it up a bit. Don't go hit, hit it all hard in one... There's some really simple steps without... Just get the ball rolling. Do on-farm trials. Yeah. Don't do... A, all farm trial, do <laughs> strip trials, yeah. that sort of thing. See, you know, if you're normal for you, sign rate 50 kilos. Yeah. See what 40 kilos does. Yeah. See what 30 kilos does. Yeah. Or see what 20, you know, do some strip trials. And then if you know that, well, 40 kilos was as good as 50, well, let's do 40 next yeah. year. And then, you know, the next step might be 30. Yeah. And, you know, those sorts of things. Don't go, I'm going to use 100 kilos of map 
and then all of a sudden I'm going to use 50 kilos of guano. Yeah. Because the two products work completely different. There, there's people doing some pretty awesome stuff with, with the time for us to get it to work in our environment. It has to be a disc. There's some stuff that you've got to do sort of whole farm approach. Like if you're going mm. to buy the disc, you've got to do it. But yeah, the, some of that nutrition stuff, just start, start small. I can't remember who was telling me. They work on seeing it for two years. So they'll trial for two two years and if they see like even if it's dry dry or dry wet 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 whatever it is see that it's worked for two years in a row and then it's like okay i'm comfortable to then take it farm farm, farm wide and then I'll, I'll trial the next thing for two years and then take it yep farm farm wide which but then there, there are some things like we just had to go back to using federal like a bit of map at the start and a bit of urea it's like yeah we just got to do this farm wide we know we just got to hit it yep. but if it's about reducing or actually we knew what we we're stepping back to mm. i guess um, but if it's going somewhere new, mm. do, it, do it small, yeah. see it a couple of times yeah. and into it. Yeah. As you're saying, you know, with the winter wheat sowing early and stuff like that, you know, that might be an opportunity for you to see in your environment, well, you know, can we back off our rates even further yeah. by sowing yeah. reasonably early? And, yeah. You know, do that for a couple of years and see what happens. Yeah. And, and well, the last couple of years we've been trying to switch all that country that has been cropped back to clover and then coming into new stuff and you can just see the the sort of the vibrance that the plants establish in a old pasture it's just like well it's early yeah. it's got that nutrition in there it's like okay this is this yep. is what we thought it was yeah. yeah we're applying nutrition but we're applying it through rotation rather than a spreader yeah so, yeah. yeah yeah you're touching on cover crops as part of your farming strategy i know you've got a really interesting trial talking about trials of your cover crop you've obviously been doing them for a few years now yeah um, do you want to explain what you're doing why you're doing it what you're seeing yeah so i think we touched on it earlier but when we were looking at the system change and then came across the i suppose i also had confidence coming back from queensland i said that dad's you know something will grow in summer we do get a little bit of rain something will grow let's have a crack at it rather than just having no use of paddocks except for dry feed for four or five months. But then, yeah, really wanting to attack that um, infiltration rate, our basically compaction soil structure issue, carbon out of continued photosynthesis, and then, yeah, feeding the sheep. We went wild early, we went nine. We've gone as far as, oh, I think, even 14 species in a mix. We've gone down to just simple as millet and sunnies, but then, yeah, we, so we have our trial paddock, which got a little control spot that basically gets all the same management, except that it's basically treated as a chemical fallow over summer as best we can. And then the rest of the paddock, the only difference is it's basically been green for six years now. Last time I checked, we'd halved our infiltration rate out where the cover crop's been growing. Carbon, which has only been zero to 10, it hasn't been tested very thoroughly in my opinion, but... We've probably been testing the most volatile part of the soil yep. for, for carbon levels. The first year, just with the stubble retention, both, and we, most of our paddocks initially were anywhere from 0.9 to 1.3, depending on, on history. First year, stubble retention, cover crop, everything jumped about 0.4. That was tested in out of 16, 2017. So 16, 17 was the first summer cover crop that we grew. So I thought, oh, all right. Here we go, got a bit of wind in the sail and then we went 18, 19 and everything went back and sat back to where they started about that 1.1 Yep. at that initial gain. And I was thinking, <clears> oh, this isn't making sense. We're growing something all year. And then we went back into 
basically conducive growing environments have got rain again and out where the cover crop is it's been as high as 2.4 2.5 yep the control area that's basically some of fallows picked up a bit just through stub retention but it's sort of sitting around that 1.8 depending on year time of year all that sort of stuff that we're testing it but so there's definitely been the trajectory what would be really interesting to know is through those dry years and um Hearing what carbon link about, you know, testing small increments and the stability of carbon at depth. Yeah. What would have happened down there in the in the deeper profile, <coughs> but even the most volatile one, we're still seeing that rapid rise mm. out where the cover crop's growing. And our sheep basically haven't seen dry feed for probably about a combined of a month for nearly what's that two since, well, since the summer of sixteen seventeen. Yep. Haven't seen and then the other part of it is is everyone says, Oh, we've got to conserve moisture. And our issue typically is a wet drought, yep. waterlogging, then a dry drought. And had spoken to people who tried it early or tried, you know, a summer crop, even even up here, some big no-till members who tried some summer co- summer cr- cash crops and then went to a grain crop. It was like, nah, strip too much moisture. So I was always really conscious about, are we using, planting at rates, species that were going to be, you know, sort of moisture light or use light. So mm. we went, stri- if that was going to become a problem, and over time it hasn't proven to be an issue at us for us at all. We did, which was basically of zero benefit. Oh, I suppose if you looked a bit harder, you might've got some information out of it, but we did some tests that were, I think that was in the summer of 19 going into 20. We did a zero to 15 and then a 15 to 50. And I just wanted to see what was happening with carbon. Not much came out of it. We did it across a variety of paddocks. The one interesting thing that came out of it was no matter whether it was completely bare paddock stubble on it but nothing growing something growing no ground cover heaps of ground cover cover crop growing whatever combination you wanted to throw at it there was only one spot that we found moisture just at 50 centimeters Mm. what we don't know is where stuff was growing had we pulled that down to one and a half meters and where nothing was growing was that moisture at you know 60 centimeters but that conserving shallow moisture for crop germination like saving something in november for April was like that that it's argument went out the away. window like if mm. we get something in February March like yeah let's start having a discussion about can we plant something early on that yep but for us using that moisture over summer we, we, we might get a reality check at some point but that moisture use equation for us over summer yep. of the cover crops <clears throat> um, hasn't been an issue the caveat to all of that is we've got a goal as to why we're growing the summer cover crops like if if you're up in you know, Western Australia or something, you might have to be really conscious about in the northern wheat belt, so you might have to be conscious about how much moisture you use. So is it just about extending the winter growing period? Yep. Like for us, like we're growing the cover crops for a reason. We played with a heap of um, different species of warm season plants um, to do certain things. So that's um, probably the caveat I put to all of that is that we're, we've been growing it for a reason, not just to be cool and grow or something, a cover crop. Works in your context. Yep. You know, yep. As you said, we get wet yep. droughts and dry droughts. Yep. If you can eliminate the wet droughts, yep. then that makes your farming system profitable. Plus then you've got some animals. As you said, they've had green tucker for <laughs> nearly every month apart from one yep. since you've started. And, yep. and what's that done for your farming, like yeah. for your sheep enterprise? Well, uh, it, it's hard. It's it, it would be quantifiable, but just as livestock managers, it's obvious as to what that's doing. I haven't gone and you know, there's so much uh, 
so many numbers to pull in certain directions to really extrapolate that value out of it. But even just on, are we using too much moisture to then go into the following crop? Well, I'm not seeing a plummet in yield. Like it's not like a crop's not growing and you can see moisture stress in it. Like it's still growing perfectly fine, if not better, where mm. it's sort of sitting around an old sorghum plant or a sunflower plant. But then what we've gained on the sheep side, it's like if we are stripping just that little bit of moisture use, which I haven't seen for us, I'll take that over. I'll take the sheep benefit over that little bit of yield yep. because we know for wet years coming and 2022, most people on the eastern seaboard know it was pretty bloody <laughs> challenging. Um, and it was amazing how long our country was trafficable, how long it took for actually water to get on it eventually, like it did get too wet in the end. Had a couple of people driving past saying, bloody hell, your country still doesn't have the surface water on it, but it did It did hit a point eventually, but it was amazing how far we got into the year and how good the crops were looking as well until it just got too wet. Mm. Yeah. And that, you know, you're obviously building some resilience in some very challenging sticky clay soils, yeah. which is, that's, I think, something to be very proud of. So. Yeah. It's getting us where we we want to be. The, the biggest the biggest challenge we've had was around the nutritional program with the crops. Yeah, that that was of all the things we've changed, that's been the biggest headache or then the kick in the guts. That that was where where the systems had the real challenge. Still a learning experience. Yes, so. yes, <laughs> yeah. Don't leave your crop success to chance. Lorico Plant Tissue Testing Services provide valuable insights into the health and nutrient levels of your plants, helping you to make informed decisions about your winter foliar applications. Your Lorico Area Manager will interpret your tests and provide recommendations from our range of premium biological inputs for free. Contact us today to schedule your plant tissue testing. Visit our website lorico.com.au or phone us on 08-8260-1134. Lorico are proud sponsors and supporters of Vic No-Till. So you've been on the board of Vic No-Till for how many years? I've lost track. I think it was seven. It was either 17 or 18. I've honestly lost track as to when I went on the board. A long time. Feels like a long time now. Yeah. You were obviously relatively young when you joined the board. Yeah. What was your motivation to, to join? I suppose I hadn't really, I'd been amongst the circles, I hadn't been on my radar and then Grant Sims, who was the president at the time, asked me to come on. I suppose I felt, to be honest, I felt, probably felt a little bit unqualified at the time, but thought it was an awesome opportunity to be amongst the people that were really pushing the, the envelope early and then... You know, we, we were observing things, we were trialling things and also an ability to give back to something that I was really believing believing in as well, to, you know, share that information. We were pushing hard, people were asking, what are we doing? It's like, well, here's an opportunity for me to contribute. Yeah, I suppose help, help people, I guess, to a certain point. Yeah. The, the ability to be at the front end of what I think is probably the most open, one of the most open associations getting around and forward thinking be part of that was it's been an awesome experience yeah yeah speaking of experiences you know what have you got out of being part of the board is it more than just giving back to people is it there's um, no there's no doubt there's a lot of friendships that have developed out of it having a supportive network i guess is probably a really big thing like you know everyone's trying it's amazing now 
you talk to someone, you realise they're only they might be 10, 15 kilometres away, and they're trialling something. But initially, when it was new, it was about finding that network of people that were we're trialling this, and it gave you a bit of confidence. You you weren't necessarily the only black sheep out there or something like. Not that that really bothered me, but just being able to yeah have discussions with people that were out there pushing the envelope as well. Yeah, I I, I kind of find that you know with my involvement been really good. Obviously. I went into it the same reason as you, to give back to an organisation that, that provided me with a lot of inspiration. Yeah. But, yeah, it's that network of people that we've got and, and being part of the board, I've probably been able to strengthen those networks a bit more and talking to people in different contexts. And it's amazing, like, we, we're bringing context up a lot and I, it's it's really important, obviously, because it's one of the now six principles of regenerative yeah, agriculture. Yeah, yeah. That's how important it is. But you get to learn stuff from other people's contexts and then you say, well, if you bend it this way, it'll fit here. Yeah. And you bend it that way and it'll fit there. And and that's probably where I've, you know, it's it's just as much a, a knowledge uh, sharing facility for me. Yeah. Well, I love going to board meetings with the likes of yourself and, you know, we sit down and we, we talk farming and, yeah. and that's what we do. Like we're, we're all farmers on the board and, and we just I, like talking. I think one of the most amazing things that came out of the board and I suppose it's happening, being on the board, and I suppose it's happening, happened within the broader Vic no-till member base as well, was we all caught the message at the same time. Like, but some people might have been down, you know, just a stripper and disc system, controlled traffic for a bit longer than someone else. But we all sort of caught the message around... The regenerative stuff at the same time, and we all headed down basically the same path yep. together, and we all hit the hit maybe, maybe, maybe within maybe within one or two years, depending on rainfall and how bad the drought was or anything like that. But we all hit the same point when it got wet. At some point, we all went, "Holy moly, okay, this, we all got to sort of adjust." And it was amazing to be part of that group when everyone took a slightly different approach again, mm. that we'd all sort of gone down one path, yeah, it seems to be working, it's looking all right, and then we're like, nah, I'm too wet, I'm too cold, I haven't been, I haven't got a disc yet, I'm still using a tine, like whatever it was, but there was still that, you know, farmers helping farmers, is about, yeah, right, mm. I, will, I, I tried this way back when, so maybe if you do that, it was, it's, it was a really amazing thing to be part of when everyone actually diverged again and put context back on their own farm. But it was still, you know, a collaborative sort of environment. Yep. To keep moving everyone in the same thing, keep sharing knowledge, experiences. Um, yeah, a really powerful thing to be part of. I'm conscious of, well, both of our time. Yep. Because we've got a field day to go to today, <laughs> and the listeners' time. Yep. As you know, we always finish our podcast with the question about what would you tell your younger self? I think if I ask that question, there's a fair chance that we'll repeat the last. 45 minutes of conversation. So I'm going to ask you something slightly different. If you had a chance to farm with the next generation, uh, what's one piece of guidance you would give them when they start getting introduced to new farming ideas? I suppose probably what we've discussed, really. Um, still oh, I haven't solved that problem at all. Yeah. Um, I suppose I'll answer it in, from two angles. Don't be afraid to challenge things. Or you know, ask ask the question, challenge it. But if you're going to if you're going to try something, you know, weigh it all up. Make sure you think about what you want to. If if you got the, I think why we're still on the same path. If you got the goal, if you got the target that you're aiming for, if it doesn't work, and we had that reality check, we had that 
um, learning experiences. Um, you know how to adjust, you know where you want to go. So it's like, we're still heading there. And so then, but still do it at a slow rate, trial it somewhere. But if you've got that goal, you're asking the questions, trial it, work it out, feel it out, and then you'll find the way to get, get through. But take it steady, take it small if it's a really big change. Yep. Keep adjusting if you have to, but if you've still got that goal, obviously, if you set your mind to something, you'll you'll get what you want. Yep. You'll no, arrive there. Very much agree with that. Yep. And one thing that comes to mind, last year's conference, Harry Youngman had a slide with a road. That was yeah. a great analogy. Um, you're on the road. You might be bouncing off the off the arm cable as you're travelling up the road, but as long as you're you know still heading in the in the right direction, well, that's all that, all that matters. Yeah. So, yeah. So and uh, you you will you will get there. Yeah. There's no doubt. If it's your passion, if you believe in it, if it's your goal, you'll get there. And if you're trialling it small, and it doesn't work out, yeah. You know, and this is the biggest thing that Dad told me: you can do anything you want, just don't go broke. Yeah. That's the number one rule. <laughs> yeah. So, Trialling things on small scale, make sure that you don't go broke. Because yep. if we want to still be regenerative, we've got to make sure that we're still profitable. Yeah, so, definitely. So, yep. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, mate. Uh, coming up early. Yeah, been good. Very good. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening to the Vic No-Till Farmers Helping Farmers podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. The more people who join the conversation, the more we learn from each other. Subscribe to Farmers Helping Farmers on your favourite podcast app and connect with Vic No Till by becoming a member or following us on Twitter, Facebook or YouTube.